Hi, everyone, and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And today we have another Billy Wilder double feature. We will be talking about Sabrina and The Apartment. And originally, we were going to look at directors with their zodiac sign and cancer, because you and I are both cancers. So mm-hmm. Billy Wilder, though, felt like the perfect one because he also shares a birthday with me and I just turned 30. So it was a momentous occasion and the perfect time really to dive into two more films in his filmography. Yeah, I'm so happy it's cancer season. We both really love Billy Wilder and all of you listeners will soon find out why. I think these two movies capture a different side of Billy that we haven't really covered yet, which is what I love about him and what also makes him a cancer is that he can do sad he can do funny he can do everything and really the power of his writing is in being able to maneuver those so finely together and it just creates these masterpieces or moments for sure in his movies that transcend and make these classics And why he has so many notable films that covering Sabrina, I feel like that name is probably like bottom tier and just like what you could name off the top of your head, unlike some like It Hot, which we haven't covered yet, or one of his first, Ninochka even. There are just so many, but I'm excited to talk about these and the stars and I guess just some other cancer directors we can start with because they are truly amazing filmmakers that we always mention on the pod. I mean, there's Sidney Pollack, who we just talked about with They Shoot Horses, Don't They? I've mentioned time and again that 12 Angry Men is one of my favorite movies of all time, and Sidney Lumet is also a cancer. Ari Aster, maybe not so much lately, but for me. <laughs> well, the the mother issues, right? Cancer being the, <laughs> yes, the mother of the Zodiac. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, my favorite working director today, Paul Thomas Anderson, is a cancer. We also have one of our favorite emotional directors, Wong Kar Wai, who made In the Mood for Love. Mm -hmm. Bob Fosse, who you know how much I love cabaret and all that jazz. This list really is just incredible. Paul Verhoeven, Ingmar Bergman. (laughs) Another favorite of ours, a shared favorite of ours, William Wyler. Mm-hmm. Also a cancer. Yes. We've had episodes devoted to him before, and I think the detail shows in this list as well. Not only in creation, like with Fosse and all that jazz, but Wong Kar Wai, Bergman, and Fanny and Alexander, just all of the set design and art direction that goes into these. It's phenomenal. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we just wanted to mention a few. Also, Mel Brooks, which we've never talked about on the pod, but I feel like is such an iconic director and with comedy that relates to Billy Wilder a little bit as well. Well, and also Mel Brooks is receiving an honorary Oscar this year. See? was announced today. And my last mention here quickly, George Cukor, who I've wanted to do an episode on for a while. Um, I think we'll we'll definitely have to find a way. We talked about him a bit with My Fair Lady, but that I actually think is one of his weaker directorial achievements compared to things like Gaslight or A Star is Born, The Philadelphia Story. So uh, yeah, I think, you know, cancers are known for being emotional. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think that's important when it comes to filmmaking and artistry. I think I feel something from every single one of these directors in their movies. So 
happy to share a star sign with them and let us know if you think if you want to go down this rabbit hole and you think you found a better zodiac sign for directors but i think cancer takes the cake even though we're a little biased well let's get started with sabrina from 1954 description here chauffeur's daughter sabrina returns home from two years in paris a beautiful young woman and immediately catches the attention of david the playboy son of her father's rich employers David woos and wins Sabrina, who has always been in love with him. However, their romance is threatened by David's serious older brother, Linus, who runs the family business and is relying on David to marry an heiress in order for a crucial merger to take place. This is directed by Billy Wilder and also co-written by him, along with Ernest Lehman and Samuel A. Taylor. It's based on Taylor's play, Sabrina Fair. It stars Audrey Hepburn, Humphrey Bogart, and William Holden. This won one Oscar for Costume Design Black and White for Edith Head. It was also nominated for five others, including Cinematography Black and White, Art Direction Black and White, Screenplay, Actress for Hepburn, and Director for Wilder. So this was my second time watching this. I watched this in a Wilder class I took in college, a retrospective, which was where I saw most of these originally. But what do you like about Sabrina and... Had you seen this before? Yeah. So Audrey Hepburn is one of my favorites, of course. I think she is just such a charming actress and someone that I automatically think of when I think of the period. And, you know, growing up as a child of TCM who rarely watched things that were made for children, I was just glued to TCM. And Sabrina really was one of my comfort movies. I just thought it was so beautiful and glamorous And I just remember thinking, I want to go to Paris watching this, just wanting to become Audrey Hepburn because she really is just absolutely luminous in this movie. And I think that what comes through for me really is the writing. It's not just how sparkling everything is in the movie. That's certainly part of it. But it's the writing that really stands out for me now when I watch it. I love the relationship between Sabrina and her dad and the juxtaposition between the Larrabee family and Sabrina's dad and the other kind of staff of this big Long Island home. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, like I said, the writing really comes through and introduces and really succeeds in giving us several romantic comedy tropes that become used throughout history. And I like that it has a bit of darkness to it. I think what I love about Billy Wilder's films, and we talked about this when we talked about Sunset Boulevard and Double Indemnity too, is that there is always a bit of dark humor underneath. And that's something that I really, really appreciate about his films and definitely with this one too. So we this is only our second Audrey Hepburn movie we've talked about. The first one was My Fair Lady. And I remember you saying when we did that one <laughs> that if it was the first Audrey oh. Hepburn movie you watched, you might never watch another one made by her again. So oh. I need to hear what you think of her <laughs> in Sabrina and if you feel better about this movie than that one. I think maybe my problem there is the 60s periodness of it. And not so much Hepburn. I don't think the character is as complex as she would have been if this were written today. 
I think it's a bit simple in how she is so distracted by this man, goes to Paris, learns her own ways, gets sucked back in, and then falls for the other guy, which we will absolutely get to. I was waiting for that one too. We'll get to we'll get to Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Which ties back to Casablanca and I was thinking about what mm-hmm. I said there. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. But Audrey Hepburn is so charming in this movie. From the first moment we see her not washing the car with her father to all of the elegant dresses that apparently weren't made by Givenchy and were designed by Edith Head later in the movie at these elegant parties i mean you just have to be starstruck by her and i think she's absolutely lovely to watch and i think she fits here in a wilder film this isn't her like most well-known film either but i do like it and i like her here that's good to hear One thing that Audrey Hepburn, I think, has always had going for her is her ability to tap into her girlishness and innocence and her elegance and sophistication. So it really works for these movies where a character has a transformative arc. So here she starts as this girl who is so just infatuated with David, with this rich guy who is never going to pay her any mind or notice her because of course, like it just reminded me of, you know, how teenage girls or like young girls can be. It's like you, when you're that age, you just are, you can latch on to things that you just can never have, or you're just trying to figure it all out. And I think she is a heightened version of that with her character. Like, She's sort of a Juliet-like archetype in Mm -hmm. some ways. Like when she tries to kill herself in the garage by turning on all of the engines and still cracking Mm -hmm. a window. That is just so funny to me. (laughs) That is just like such Billy Wilder dark humor. And when she says, I would rather die than go to Paris. Again, it's an exaggerated sense Mm -hmm. of this childish young woman who is in another league, right, from this man. And so I like that, you know, she goes away to Paris and she becomes the sophisticated version of the character who is very closely tied to who we know is Audrey Hepburn. Like when you think of Audrey Hepburn, you think of the Givenchy, you think of the like short haircut and those striking eyebrows and just that classic elegant beauty. So in the story, it really works for the Sabrina character, but it's also... She's so believable as both young Sabrina pre-Paris mm-hmm. and as this woman who goes away for two years and just becomes this really sophisticated, worldly woman. And you mentioned that about Givenchy and Edith Head, but I think the most interesting thing about this, about the costumes, is that it actually started one of Audrey Hepburn's most important partnerships in her entire career. Mm-hmm between her and this designer and how initially Givenchy only took the meeting because he thought he was meeting with Catherine Hepburn, (laughs) not Audrey. (laughs) And then it ended up being Audrey and it somehow worked out and just became this collaboration between the two of them. And it's part of the reason why she became the fashion icon that we know her as today. So Mm. I thought that was a really cool thing about the costumes because you have these like two icons where they're different stories about who did what with the costumes and 
who got credit for certain things, but ultimately, you know, you have two of the greatest names in fashion at the time, both contributing to Audrey's most truly glorious looks on film. I mean, that one dress she wears where her collarbone is exposed, it has a really, really cool neckline. I'm like, that is just so, Mm -hmm. so beautiful. It's what you think of when you think of Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, there are two notable dresses. One is the white gown that has her arms connected to it. I believe at the party when she dances with David and tries to recreate the earlier scene from the movie with the champagne glasses in the tennis court, but then also later, almost the last scene in the film when she ends up going and seeing Linus in that tighter black dress. Just Mm -hmm. two stunning looks that, taking it back to the beginning, I don't think I really believed her to be this like Cinderella figure because she's Audrey Hepburn and being the damsel in distress it takes away so much power from her that she does get back later in the film like with her journey to Paris and I think this can relate to the apartment as well when we talk about that movie but the cast in general having these three leads together I mean granted they didn't all like each other on set but they're huge names and kind of like with Humphrey Bogart and Casablanca was a little against type. And especially here, he was so upset. He did not like it. He kind of played down this movie and role entirely. And then once it was successful and he was lauded, Bogart apologized to Wilder, (laughs) (laughs) which is crazy. And what I said on our Casablanca episode was that I didn't really believe Bogart to be this love interest this romantic type that they portrayed him as with Ingrid Bergman but here it kind of worked for me but maybe that is also because he doesn't think he's in love the entire movie and kind of the whole movie we I expected it to flip like when she came back she would fall for him but it doesn't happen until very late in the movie really. And I think that's also something that Wilder succeeds in in screenwriting is that he can stall moments that I think have specific beats, especially in the 50s and 60s, that keep you on the edge of your seat as a viewer. And he has some great quotes about screenwriting and directing that relate to this. But I think that's another thing that worked better for me than maybe I expected. How do you feel about the Bogart character and Holden, who I think is hot here. And it's really unfortunate for Bogart because Linus is one of, I'm sorry, like the worst brother names. If you're going to compare David and Linus, well, we can get to the age after you answer my questions. (laughs) Well, I'm not that into William Holden. I'm much more into him in Sunset Boulevard because I think that the dynamic between him and Gloria Swanson is just so funny to me to watch. That movie is its my favorite Billy Wilder movie, and I think his performance there works so well for me, and it's actually part of the reason why he and Humphrey Bogart clashed a little bit is because Wilder loved Holden. He was in Sunset Boulevard in 1950, and he had just won an Oscar for Stalag 17, which is another Billy Wilder film. So he was kind of this golden child, and 
Humphrey Bogart was the second choice, which I actually think is a great dynamic for these characters to have. If the actors are going in thinking about it in this way, it's kind of Mm -hmm. the way that Sabrina viewed the brothers, which is just a great sort of meta dynamic. I think Humphrey Bogart is actually perfect for the role of Linus. So originally it was supposed to be Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. How do you think it worked? would have worked with Cary Grant? And then I'll talk more about Humphrey Bogart, of course. But just I would love to know if you would prefer that. I think he would have done great, but his character is so likable. I would have seen that mm-hmm. coming all along and probably more bored in the end with that choice. I mean, his reason for not doing this is apparently he didn't want to hold an umbrella on set, <laughs> which is I awful. love that man. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think... Bogart does work better than him, yeah. I totally agree. So Cary Grant is one of my favorite actors from this period in history. I think he should have multiple Oscars. I love Cary Grant so much, but I think he's too handsome. He's such a great physical comedian. He has more charm in one finger than Humphrey Bogart has in his entire body. And I think that that it wouldn't work in this movie if you had Cary Grant William Holden because you have to believe that she would be infatuated with this blonde playboy brother and you couldn't really believe that she wouldn't pay the other brother any mind if he was Cary Grant. And you also, I think one of the reasons why Humphrey Bogart is so good in this movie and works so well as Linus is because you have to believe that he is responsible, that he's all business, and that he would be more concerned with the family Mm -hmm. business than with love. For that dynamic to work, and for it to change ultimately in the end, and for him to own up to the way that he feels, you have to have the type of actor who is believable in that sense. And Mm -hmm. that's exactly who Humphrey Bogart is as an actor and why he works so well as Linus, you have to believe that he's the type of guy who she really wouldn't have paid any attention to until it came along and just hit her in the face that, Oh, I actually like this guy instead. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I love the casting. I think it really ended up working out for the best. And Audrey Hepburn and William Holden were like having an affair or in a relationship during this movie too so that adds another dynamic to everything so yeah it's when you hear about things like that that are happening behind the scenes too i feel like it makes the movie even better i just love all of the old hollywood lore (laughs) people think people back then i think were so squeaky clean and you know Mm -hmm. perfect and that was not the case at all yeah what i also like is holden being extra blonde here which plays well with the black and white too But talking about Bogart, which in the movie, I don't know, again, maybe I just don't really see these things as major issues. But at the time, Audrey Hepburn was 25 and Humphrey Bogart was 55. Humphrey Bogart was born in 1899. That just sounds so old when you say it like that. (laughs) I thought I was like, wait, is that right? The 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) He died three years after this movie came out. I know. Which is crazy. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's it's really sad, too, because when he was dying of cancer later and Wilder went to go visit him, they had this reconciliation with each mm. other. And 
I read this in an interview that Wilder later went on to say that he was very good, better than he thought he was. He liked to play the hero, and in the end, he was. Oh. So I thought yeah, that was that's sweet. sweet. But did you see that as an issue or something that couldn't be overcome in the film with their age difference? And I guess for reference, William Holden was 11 years older than Audrey Hepburn. So he was a little bit in between, but they do definitely look more of the same age. Cary Grant is closer to Humphrey Bogart's age, so he also would have been a little bit older. I do think Humphrey Bogart looks significantly older than Audrey Hepburn, but it wasn't something that I really cared about or like latched onto in the movie. I think it feels even more pronounced maybe than it is because she literally becomes a woman in this film effectively. Like she moves away and just becomes this like beautiful, glamorous, mature, worldly woman. And I do think he seems older, especially because of what he cares about and the way that he moves through each scene. Whereas David seems much more sprightly and alive. (laughs) So I feel like that's, yeah, it feels more pronounced, I think, because their characters are the way that they are. But I also think it makes sense for him to be this like sturdy, serious older brother. So I wasn't really bothered by it. But I do think it's kind of hard for, it's hard for me always to root for Linus and Sabrina. And this is again, like when I was into Victor Laszlo during Casablanca, it's a little bit different here because Linus is the sensible choice in every way. But I don't know. There's always a part of me when I watch this movie that wants David to grow up and realize that Sabrina was there all along and for them to work out. But I also know he's kind of a dirtbag and she deserves better and needs to get over him. So it's always this inner conflict that I have because... Mm -hmm. I don't always necessarily buy Linus and Sabrina as a couple that I need to end up together. Why does it have to be one of the brothers? I feel like those are her only two options and there's no other man in the world. She was in Paris for God's sake. And she comes back and kind of plays with him in the car because he doesn't recognize her. But she comes back to this house, this setting where she was up in a tree looking at these parties and daydreaming about him. And for him to go from not noticing her and her knowing that to him not knowing who she was, but then also deceiving her while also having a fiancé at the time, it's just, why this man who doesn't really care about you? But again, you're like you said earlier... Everything is exaggerated and it's more Mm -hmm. of making a movie and a script and this romantic drama comedy where it plays really well. I mean, I think so. I have several answers to your question, which is first, I have the same reaction when I watch this movie every single time, which is you are in Paris for two years and you're telling me there isn't anyone there better than these Larrabee brothers. But two, I mean, it is really just a function of the script, right? Mm -hmm. It's fun to have a love triangle with these brothers. And at the same time, Billy Wilder always involves a plot that has to do with some sort of business or an ordinary job. He has insurance investigators across his films, like in Double Indemnity. We're going to talk about an accountant very soon with the apartment. 
he has people in these sorts of very corporate jobs to varying extents. Like sometimes they're lower level, like every man positions and other times they're high up and they make a lot of money. And I think he's really interested in commenting on workplace relationships and navigating business deals and those sorts of corporate decisions in his movies. So I think Mm -hmm. that's part of it with the script. It's also just like a trope that still continues today. This is like the 1954 version of Vampire Diaries for anyone who watched that. (laughs) There's always something with a girl and two brothers. Not another WB show comparison. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We have Kiltmore Girls and now we have Vampire Diaries. I actually think this one might be worse. But yeah, and then also you have the the Cinderella glow up, right? Mm -hmm. The girl who suddenly is the person who can catch the attention or the eye of the person that she's theoretically always wanted. Like she's achieving that dream she had and then realizing that, oh, like maybe that's actually not what I want. That's something that also always works in literature or in romantic comedies. So he's playing with a lot of his favorite things that he likes to do as far as tone and genre goes across films but he's also really smartly using these actors and their skill sets right in thinking about these characters and in how they would realistically interact with each other even if it can come across as heightened and exaggerated mm-hmm. at times just ending this part of the conversation there's a quote that Linus says at one point and he goes Here's a kiss from David. It's all in the family. (laughs) (laughs) Just so comical. But like, yes, I understand what he's doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because then later in the film, there's a quote from Sabrina and she goes, I'm cured. Meaning she's falling in love with Linus. Dot, dot, dot. Now I have to go get over the cure. So Mm -hmm. it's just his ability with words. Like it totally entraps you in this world but also one more thing i want to mention is you mentioned like the everyday man which i think he does beautifully in both of these movies and there are little hints along the way too and i noticed with the costumes all of the businessmen coming and going out of the building they all have these like straw hats on and there's a point in the film when sabrina and linus are talking about his hat and his brim and how it's not parisian to have Mm -hmm. it down And later in the film, David comes up and he has that straw hat on. So we kind of know, you know, he's this every man. He is dull or too dull for Sabrina, at least. But there's one other thing that I really love from this movie, and it's how they use Love on Rose, that song, and all of the renditions. Just the romance of it, but also how they make it swell in the end to make this really climactic moment and really sweet. I think it's beautifully done. I completely agree. I love that. And I just echoing what you said, the writing in this movie, it's just so sharp. And the way that he plays with certain comedic touches that he brings back later in the film Mm -hmm. in such smart ways, little symbols or details in the costumes, like you pointed out with the hat and how he does such a good job in making a point of it. So you might think when you're first watching that scene when she's talking about his hat that she's going to do something differently because I love how she says all night long I have had the most terrible impulse to do something and he says oh never resist an impulse Sabrina Mm. especially if it's terrible and you think that what's coming might be 
I don't know. I always think like, what's she going to do? And she just fixes his hat and tells him about how you can't carry an umbrella in Paris, Mm -hmm. how Parisians don't do this. And it's these, these little details where he plays with tension really beautifully. Mm -hmm. I think I love that one. I also just love the little comedic touches when Sabrina's talking to her father or when they're reading the letter that Sabrina sends when mm-hmm. she's away in oh Paris. My God. So good. <laughs> it's so funny. And they just don't know. They're like, has she, you know, has she gotten over David? How is she doing there? And one of my favorite lines in the letter is when she says, I decided to be sensible the other day and tore up David's picture. Could you please airmail me some scotch mm-hmm. tape? <laughs> so it's this back and forth, and you know everyone is so invested in her, but that this relationship that she's just, even though she's over there, like it's had such an effect on her. So much so that she names her dog David when she comes back. <laughs> <laughs> and what's so good about that scene, I laughed out loud during that scene. It's his timing mm-hmm. and how they respond in the room. Oh, that's good. Oh, that's bad. Oh, uh-huh. that's good. Oh, that's bad. <laughs> like, it's just so good. Mm-hmm. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? So it would have to be screenplay here. I think it's just, there are so many things you could choose. I do love Audrey Hepburn. I think she is a star in this movie. It's a Mm -hmm. wonderful performance, but the screenplay is just so witty and sharp. And Samuel A. Taylor, who wrote Sabrina Fair, ended up leaving the production because he was unhappy with the changes that Billy Wilder Mm. had made to the play. And then Ernest Lehman came on to make last minute changes. He is an incredible screenwriter who has writing credits on things like North by Northwest, West Side Story, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And I feel like between, you know, the three of them, they were really able to create something very special. And that's one of my go-to comfort movies. I would also give it screenplay. I think that's the star element of all of Wilder's films. And to not award it screenplay is just so hard. There are so many others. Obviously, the costumes here that actually won his direction as well. I don't know who we would, if this were made today, there is the remake with Harrison Ford that I haven't seen, and it was directed by Sidney Pollack. But if we have this today, we could cast you in DDL (laughs) because he's 66, and now that you're 30... It would work. Oh, my God. I'm turning red. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know who would write this movie that is as good as Billy Wilder. That's really tough. I mean, I feel like the obvious choice would be Nancy Myers if someone did Mm -hmm. make it today. But, wow, Nancy Myers directing (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis and me in a Sabrina remake. Why did you bring this up? (laughs) Who would play David? In this version. We need like a himbo. It's gotta be a himbo. Yeah. Who's like in their forties. Like Chris Hemsworth or something. Maybe Bradley Cooper could do it. Okay, we've gone on too we've we've gone too far now. (laughs) Let's do let's move on. Our next movie is The Apartment from nineteen sixty. Description here. Insurance worker CC Baxter. Lends his Upper West Side apartment to company bosses to use for extramarital affairs. When his manager, Mr. Sheldrake, begins using Baxter's apartment in exchange for promoting him, Baxter is disappointed to learn that Sheldrake's mistress is Fran Kubelik, the elevator girl at work whom Baxter is interested in himself. 
Soon, Baxter must decide between the girl he loves and the advancement of his career. This was directed by Billy Wilder, and it was written by Wilder and IAL Diamond. It stars Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, and Jack Crucian. This movie won five Oscars, including Best Picture, Director for Wilder, Story and Screenplay, notably making Wilder the first person in history to win all three of those Oscars, which is really cool. Art direction, black and white, and film editing. It was nominated for five others, actor for Jack Lemmon, actress for Shirley MacLaine, supporting actor for Crucian, cinematography, black and white, and sound. I will just come right out and say that this is one of my favorite movies. I love it. It is one of my repeat watches on New Year's Eve, a go-to. But what do you think of The Apartment? The Apartment is a really smartly constructed film that is almost too hard to rewatch, but also gets better on rewatch. There are certain elements that are really, really dark that could be the darkest he's ever done. And I think in a way that was shocking at the time as well. I think the way it's constructed, I really like the ending. And I really like the performances here too. It's the way that Jack Lemmon was brought on and hadn't really done serious roles before and he pulled it off really well. And the way I think that Shirley MacLaine just steals the movie with her performance. But I also agree in that, yeah, it's a perfect movie to watch between Christmas and New Year's too. Like in that Mm -hmm. lull of that week because it celebrates both and it's like a big quiet movie it really is like an anti best picture winner that swept everyone away but it just kind of shocks me every time i think about it that it's won so many big awards because of how not loud it is but i think it's such a strong picture and i know you've mentioned before it being up there in your top best picture winners so it's definitely in the top 10 so it is very Mm -hmm. high up But yeah, I I think this one is just, it's kind of sneaky in what it's doing. It really takes you by surprise. I think this movie is so detailed that you need multiple watches, I think, to fully get what Wilder is doing here, which is making something that is just this big emotional wallop by the end of it, but also is this shrewd, incisive commentary on corporate America and changing attitudes toward the workplace at the time in this movie i mean like you said it's kind of wild that it won best picture especially in 1960 because it's pretty provocative for the time i mean it's about how all of these terrible men who are the bosses at this company are just using this guy's apartment taking advantage of him promising him promotions so that they can cheat on their wives and treat these women in the office absolutely terribly. But it's also an interrogation about the morals of our protagonist in this Jack Lemmon character, who I think is fabulous in this movie. He's such an extraordinary comedian, and I think he brings so much to this part. He reminded me a lot of Chaplin, actually, when I was watching it. Um, There are certain scenes and things that he would do, like when he's using the tennis racket as a colander Mm -hmm. for the spaghetti, Mm -hmm. Um, just little things like that that just feel like he's improvising. And Wilder is notoriously against improvisation in his films. He runs a tight ship when it comes to direction, which made him 
a little bit different than his peers at the time, than other auteurs, because he was not really that interested in visual flourishes. He was much more interested in the script itself and how to run a set like a machine. So Lemon, I think, really stuck to the script, but was able to use his physical gestures to add more to the character and to make the film even better than it was on paper somehow. And I agree with you about Shirley MacLaine. I think she's so wonderful in this movie and the heart of the movie really is in her eyes. There's so much that she's doing Mm -hmm. and because of how we meet her as this elevator attendant, she's just so sweet and positive and smiley and then Suddenly, as we learn more about her, we realize how much pain she's in. And I just think she's she's so, so wonderful. And it's just such a perfect early nomination for her. And I'm so glad that she got a Best Actress nomination. But again, like thinking about how provocative this was and potentially scandalous it was at the time... Wilder was actually inspired by one of my favorite movies, David Lean's Brief Mm -hmm. Encounter for The Apartment. And I think the idea is so interesting that he thought about the part in the film when Laura and Alec go to his friend's flat Mm -hmm. and they have this time together there. And Wilder was struck by, you know, who is this friend? What is the friend's deal, basically? How can I make a movie or explore that idea and brief encounter came out in the forties. So he had to sit on this idea for a little bit, but he definitely couldn't have made it then because of what he wanted to talk about. So I'm glad that he was able to wait as long as he could to get this out at the right time for audiences, because I just think it's, it's wonderful. It's so successful. Yeah. And thinking about him having this idea and wanting to get around the Hayes code and falling on capitalism, suicide and romance as that response is absolutely not something I would have thought of. So for Mm -hmm. him to go there, especially in 1960, to have suicide be this big climactic moment, which like I felt dumb watching it. You know, the music is beautiful in this moment and he ends on her filling the glass and fade to black. And obviously they're not going to show anything, but it makes the audience have to interpret what they're watching too, which is why Billy Wilder is a really smart director as well. He relies on his audience to do the thinking. He doesn't tell you, he doesn't voice over. He makes you watch and enjoy and experience his films. And I think the aftermath of that, it's also so brilliant because at this moment, she still doesn't know it's CeCe Baxter's apartment. And it's only when she's unconscious that he finds out and she doesn't find out until she's woken up after they've given her coffee and smelling salts and the doctor has slapped her and the next day. So it's crazy that he can, again, prolong these moments and these beats in this film to create anticipation and how you think these characters are going to interact once they finally know where they are. And that's really the the crux of the movie and why it's impressive is this relationship that we have between cc baxter and fran kubelik and it's all the other drama that is responding to them to the good guys the ones that are being shat upon over and over in so many different ways yeah 
One of the most interesting things he does in the screenplay is that he creates this core tension. And we talked about tension a bit in Sabrina, but here I think he does it, I mean, even better than he does there. But the core tension for me when I watch this movie is thinking, is C.C. Baxter a good guy? And what does it really mean, I guess, to be a good guy Mm -hmm. at this time? But more specifically is, you know, who is he? Is he a really good guy who cares about these women and isn't going to, you know, stoop to his boss's level and he's walked all over and he just wants to work his way up in the corporate ladder and he's just doing what he can to do that? Or could he at any point, based on what he's shown us in the movie, based on how he's told us effectively through each scene, like he's willing to do anything that it takes to get up there, to get a new office, to get a promotion, could he go down the path of the other men at the company? Like, could we see him in 20 years being a Sheldrake? Like, is that possible for this character? And I think that's something I always come back to when I watch this movie is that Wilder is, he's not saying it's its one or the other necessarily. He's just showing us that all of these people are really complicated we don't have like this this man who is morally good or bad or anything like that. We just have someone who is struggling in their current system and doing the best they can with what they know. And I think by the end of the film, we can trust that he's going to be different. And the other side to that is the apartment itself. The building he lives in, the other people in his building think he's a slut that he has women over all the time, (laughs) (laughs) but he can't tell them because they would probably Mm -hmm. kick him out, I assume. So the doctor and his wife next door, they just hear him all night and the women giggling and just partying music. Mm -hmm. And then downstairs, the lady comes up and yells at him saying, what were you doing last night? You were running around. And that's when Fran takes the pills and the doctor comes over. Mm -hmm. But It's all of those moments, too, where everyone thinks he's this different person Mm -hmm. and he's being pulled in so many directions. And yeah, I think without Fran, there is the potential that he could turn into, I don't think a form of Sheldrake, but I think a businessman for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you wonder, like, when do those types of men become terrible? Like, are they always terrible or do they get there from being in that system for a long time right and i think there is some distinction i mean that he Mm -hmm. doesn't elaborate on it a lot but with who baxter is in the beginning like he is committed to his work and i think the other businessmen wilder does not portray well they're all just kind of there we never see them working they're just there in their offices or if they need him it's not for work again it's for his apartment and if he's not willing to give him the key then they are very quick to say oh well we'll tell mr sheldrake and you'll you'll be out of a job you're not going to get that promotion yeah so i think there is a difference between them which is why it's hard to say like if baxter could become them but it does really play a fine line really really well and again wilder's script just phenomenal so many deeply dark moments like Fran's broken mirror and she says I like it that way 
makes me look the way I feel. And, you know, the other women in the office, his secretary who he had had an affair with before and all of those women that she tells Fran about at the Christmas party. It's just phenomenal how many things Wilder can bring into one script and Mm -hmm. talk about, especially so many big like water cooler topics or just things that weren't talked about publicly between people, especially for the 60s. Yeah, I think this screenplay really showcases how strong of a writer he is, especially the attention to detail with the supporting players. Each supporting character really has their own style of speaking, and it's so fun to pick up on as you make your way through the film. Like the one character in the office who ends everything with wise. (laughs) It's just like, oh, Mm -hmm. that's what he's going to say, or how the men in the office call him buddy boy. Like they can't even bother to learn his name. They just, you know, it's an easy way where you think at first like, oh, this is a term of endearment for him. But actually it's because they can't be bothered to (laughs) really learn who he is. And I don't know. I, I also think it's, it's really cool and it's a good detail in the movie that Jack Lemmon isn't like 22 of this company He's in his 30s, Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the point in your life when you, I don't know, it's like you still care a little bit about, you know, what people think you should do and what you're supposed to want and not necessarily what you do want. I think he he really feels that. It's like, is this what I want or is this what other people want for me? And he's still trying, I think, to do what he thinks he's supposed to do at the time which is work his way up and i don't know i think you you really feel the the rat race nature of the office and how important it is for him to work his way up at a place like that in new york at the time so i think yeah again like the attention to detail with his job and why that's important to him is really really smart and how for him and Fran, how important it is that they met each other for both of them. I think effectively they both save each other from really bad fates for each of their characters in the movie. And that's what makes it so beautiful by the end. Mm -hmm. I also love that you actually really feel for Shirley MacLaine's character, because I think sometimes in films that aren't written by great screenwriters or even other films that came out around this time, you don't necessarily feel for the woman who is doing the cheating, right? Like you don't feel for the the other woman stereotype. But here, I think he really makes Shirley MacLaine's character just this fully like three-dimensional, empathetic woman. And you side with her the entire time. And along with that, Wilder had worked with Fred McMurray before in Dumble Indemnity and being the protagonist there, we're rooting for him, again, in a twisted way. But here, he is truly one of the most despicable men I've ever seen on film. Horrible. So awful. <laughs> and he had just signed a contract with Disney to do family films, so it was a real struggle for him. Like, people people did not know how to react to him in this movie. <laughs> it's just so shocking. From the restaurant they go to, to how... He interacts with Baxter and all the other women. But, oh, just what he says to Fran and then he says the opposite 
to Baxter in such a playful way. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, man, these women, you have to tell them you're going to divorce them to keep them strung along, basically. And it's like, oh, my God. (laughs) It's so Right. And knowing that he's been with so many women in that office. It's gross. Yeah. It's so, so gross. It felt like Mad Men to me, though. It's like Mm -hmm. very, (laughs) very Mad Men. Like Don Draper and Roger Sterling would totally be these types to have some poor, lowly employee's spare key to his conveniently located apartment. That's like too good of a comparison. They really would. <laughs> well, like the Christmas party in this movie is so fabulous. I always think like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to go to this office party. It's so wild and just looks fun. And it reminds me a lot of madmen of the office parties in some of those episodes Mm -hmm. so that's where i drew the comparison initially but then i just kept thinking i was like don draper would not bat an eye about taking a spare key to someone's apartment he'd just do it in his office but it might be better (laughs) if he had a spare apartment one other question i have on how you feel about it is how he portrays suicide with women and if it makes them these weak characters or not Because in both of these movies, we have women with pixie cuts committing suicide for men. And later in the movie, they smell gas from the apartment and they think she's tried it again. I mean, funny the connection there to Sabrina. But once they're inside, she's actually housekeeping and doing laundry and taking care of the apartment and like cleaning it for him. So Mm -hmm. it just seems like a very dated approach to these female characters, but also in contrast of how he's portraying toxic masculinity in this capitalist business setting is just a really interesting dynamic to have in a film. Yeah, it's odd sort of that we have, we chose these two films really without thinking of the the suicide connection or the, yeah, the attempted suicide connection. I think in the first movie, it's played much more for laughs and I think it feels more like a gag and something that you know is not going to happen. Whereas when you first watch The Apartment, it feels very, very real suddenly. I think he's really critical of men and their you know, infidelity or extramarital affairs in both films. I think some of his writing of female characters, it goes from being brilliant to dated depending on the movie. He actually, if you read interviews from the time or like do research on Wilder at this time like Marilyn Monroe did not have a positive experience working with him Shirley MacLaine even said like he would not let her do any improvisation he made her do certain scenes up to 50 times and a lot of women who he worked with felt like he did not care about their characters as much as he cared about the male characters in his movies the examples that I saw were of Marilyn Monroe and Shirley MacLaine so, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky, tricky thing. I I don't know. I think, though, in The Apartment, it is handled pretty well with the character. And it's also brought about in sort of a funny way near the end when she thinks that he has shot himself, but he's mm-hmm. popped the champagne Again, bottle. Yeah. Or, yeah, she thinks that a gun went off. So it comes back around in kind of playful ways. It starts on a serious note and then it changes up a little bit throughout the film. I think he's just so good with tonal shifts too. 
Like, they never feel really abrupt. He does them very delicately in thinking about how he, you know, brings in comedic and very dark dramatic elements at the same time. So, yeah, I can, I think I can see that. It's just not something I've really completely thought about before. So that's interesting. I have a less serious question for you. <laughs> Great. We can end on a happier note. Than that. <laughs> yeah. So if you only had to pay $85 a month for a one bedroom apartment in the West 60s <laughs> near Central Park, but it meant you had to rent out your apartment or give a spare key to all of your male coworkers for their affairs, would you do it? Every night of the week or maybe every weeknight? Yeah. No, absolutely not. A one bedroom? I know. No. Yeah, one bedroom, but $85 a month. How desperate are you for You're paying for, cheap- for all of these other people to live there essentially. And you're going to live on the street or watch the apartment while they're in there. And yeah, imagining having to go back and wash or have like 50 different sets of sheets ready like that's even worse the laundry situation is a huge question for me this movie are you changing your sheets that frequently like do you have in-unit laundry like what is going on with the the sheet situation he also they're taking all of his alcohol they're taking all of his food he is replenishing everything like yes he's like the worst type of airbnb god (laughs) yeah it's a bit insane I calculated it though, and for inflation, it would be around eight hundred dollars a month. That's still today. not real. I know. It's like that would be like that's still nothing. Five thousand dollars a month, yeah. <laughs> more. But it's really it's tempting when you think about the location. I have to say that's a it's a great great spot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, not worth it, especially for the laundry and just the moral <laughs> conundrum I would have. <laughs> so, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Again, I would have to give it screenplay, and thankfully, it's original here. Sabrina was adapted, so it works. It's just phenomenal what he can do. I think, again, this is one of the best examples in his filmography of where he can toe the line between comedy and drama, serious and funny, all of those dualities so well together, and he ends it on such a hopeful note that brings back this bit that they have done time and again throughout this movie to the point that it's not dull but it lifts the material and all the elements in the film i love you know there's the score and the cinematography the set design this apartment is so iconically new york but also designed in a way that frames really really well at any angle yeah i love it as a holiday movie again it's just something i would Rewatch over and over. What would you give it? I would also give it screenplay. (laughs) I mean, there's so many you could go with here. Direction, any of the performances. I really think it's it's wonderful. Yeah, it's one of my favorite movies, but the screenplay is what sets it apart from so many other Best Picture winners or films from the time. I think often about how good Wilder is at showing, not telling. Dialogue is only part of a script, and the dialogue here is it's so thorough and smart and specific to every character. But I think of how many times we know something just based on an inclusion of a particular shot 
or, you know, the way, for instance, that we know that Baxter's really drunk because we see how he lines up the toothpicks mm, and the olives yeah. from his martinis and how long the ash is <laughs> on the cigarette, how that woman keeps blowing the straw paper at him and he's not even flinching, mm-hmm. or his facial expression when we see that moment of recognition when he opens the mirror and notices that it's cracked and what that means. So it's just little things like that that he includes in the screenplay that I think just make it absolutely brilliant. And it's a great winner. I'm happy it won all of the Oscars that it did. Well, I'm sure we'll cover more Billy Wilder in the future. There are so many other movies that I love from him that we both love. I'm absolutely sure of that. But this was a great little duo. And I think finding the similarities between them was also fun. Yeah, two of his more romantic films. And I love the comparisons between the two and the endings. For listeners, there's a great article in Brightwall Dark Room, which is one of my favorite sites to read for film analysis, where the writer Marshall Schaefer compares the two endings. And I thought it was just a really, really beautiful comparison. So go read that piece. They say, Wilder's two most renowned romances, 1954 Sabrina and 1960's Best Picture winner, The Apartment, both conclude on a note that's hardly happily ever after. He indulges the third act genre imperative, the grand romantic gesture in both films. In Sabrina, Bogart's Linus makes a dramatic maritime chase after Hepburn's titular heroine. In The Apartment, Wilder grants a rare extended close-up to Shirley MacLaine as her friend Kubelik makes an important realization while Old Lang Syne ushers in a new year. She's ringing in the holiday with the wrong man. She then rushes across town to be with Jack Lemmon's good-hearted Bud Baxter in the apartment where he doted on her following an attempted suicide. Yet in both cases, the grand romantic gesture is not reciprocated. Chiefly, there's no kiss between the leads. Linus and Sabrina warmly embrace on the deck of the cruise liner headed to Paris, then Wilder immediately fades out to black. Fran and Bud reconnect, and he professes his love, but she cheekily focuses on resuming a previous game of gin rummy rather than acknowledging his declaration, shut up and deal. Fran affectionately ribs him as the music swells and the film ends. But yeah, I think that both of these films are just great additions to Billy Wilder's filmography, and I love talking about both of them. Sabrina is available on... 2B TV and Hoopla. If you have a library card, it's also available to rent. And the apartment is streaming on Amazon Prime and also available to rent. Next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be continuing the 30th celebration and we will be looking at Steven Spielberg's incredible 1993, where he had the Best Picture winner, Schindler's List, and the number one movie at the box office. Jurassic Park. So we'll be talking about both of those. Very different, (laughs) very, very different films in his filmography. But both lovely in their own way. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about those. Thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. Also on patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde for bonus content. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.